The growing problem of Oakland's homeless encampments. This one location is a quarter mile long on Wood Street from West Grand to 26th Street. The unhoused are butted up one against the other for the entire length. One of the biggest encampments in the city is here on Wood Street in West Oakland. It extends for several blocks and even under the freeway. One person who lives here says he thinks there's over 200 people living out here. He says he's tried to apply for housing programs in the city but is still living on the streets. I'm Delincey Parham. And I'm Abbas Muntakeem. And this is Tales of the Town, a podcast about Black Oakland. In the fall of 2020, the Oakland City Council and Oakland's Mayor Libby Schaaf approved a new policy on houseless encampments. EMP, which stands for Encampment Management Policy, restricts where houses people can set up their tents in Oakland. It restricts homeless encampments within 150 feet of an elementary or middle school, within 100 feet of a high school, and within 50 feet of a house, public park, retail business, or protected waterway. So basically, everywhere. For Mayor Libby Schaaf, it was considered the quote-unquote most comprehensive policy. We have to do a better job, and this policy will let us do that, to actually keep these encampments cleaner more healthy, less dangerous, and less in conflict with the health concerns of others. That's the mayor. In other words, she was calling to push houseless people out of encampments and away from the public eye. This had already been happening for years, but this new policy, it just made it legal. We've heard this type of coded language from Libby Schaff used before, about making our city cleaner and less dangerous. It's a similar type of language used to justify the gentrification of the town. And the result is similar. The houses get pushed out and neglected. Officer, can I ask you a question? Did you know in California it's illegal to evict homeless people without giving them a place to go? That's audio from a video I took in West Oakland on May 8, 2018. In the video, dozens of pigs and construction crews were trying to evict houseless people from the encampments they were living in. Evicting houseless folks and creating no homeless zones without offering the alternative of a shelter may be illegal in breaching the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits inflicting cruel and unusual punishments. What have you done with all the money that was donated to the homeless? Mm. Go kill it for yourself. You have never spent one penny on the homeless. There were around 20 of us that were there to protest and try to stop this eviction from happening. We were successful. But with encampments popping up around the town and the city of Oakland being strategic with the time periods they would do these raids, like during work hours, it was virtually impossible to prevent evictions from happening. Even in 2020, during the height of a global pandemic, we saw city of Oakland workers harassing folks on the street, removing their belongings and making threats of pushing them out. But let's pause for a second. How do we get here? And why are there so many houseless people living on the streets of Oakland. We have found in this country, and maybe we're more aware of it now, is one problem uh, that we've had even in the best of times, and that is the people who are sleeping on the grates, the homeless who are homeless, you might say, by choice. In 1967, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California at that time. He cut 10% of the budget to the Department of Mental Hygiene, which was what they referred to as mental health hospitals. The hospitals were already below staffing levels, and this decision, it cut over 3,700 jobs. 
Reagan then signed the Lanterman-Petrus Short Act, which made it illegal to hold patients against their will and hold patients for an indefinite amount of time. In theory, this sounds like a positive thing, but in reality, there weren't adequate resources for folks once they left the hospitals. So many of them ended up on the streets. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. In the 80s, when he became president, he cut services from the federal budget that supported those with mental illness. All of Reagan's actions, from when he was governor to the president, systematically cut resources to those with mental health disabilities, oftentimes under the guise of personal freedoms, medical rights, and state responsibilities. Reagan's actions in office increased the House's population around the country, and we saw the ramifications of these policies here in the Bay. We are living in a time of strange economic contradictions. 12 million people are unemployed in our country, 1.3 million of them in California, more than 150,000 right here in the Bay Area. It hasn't been this bad since the Great Depression. There are now an in the 80s, Oakland was dealing with the crack epidemic, racist pigs, and other white supremacist capitalist bullshit, including the explosion of tech in the nearby Silicon Valley. Yet the stock market is booming. Venture capitalists are making millions of dollars overnight in Silicon Valley video games. For a few, it's the best of times. For many more, it's the worst. At this time, while a small percentage of folks in the Bay Area were thriving economically, the majority of the people who were suffering at the hands of poverty were black. Now, 50 years later, shit is getting worse. In the past, the homeless of San Francisco were invisible, or rather unknown. A 2022 Oakland City survey report on houselessness shows that the houseless population has increased by 24% over the last three years. On top of that, buying a house can cost up to $981,000 or more. The median rent here is $2,800. There are about 5,000 houseless people in the town, finding refuge in encampments of tents and RVs. And the majority of the folks living in these encampments are black, despite the fact that black people are actively being pushed out of Oakland. We tapped in with Brandy Summers. She's an assistant professor of geography and global metropolitan studies at UC Berkeley. She's done a lot of research around gentrification, race, and houselessness. And she's also from the town. When I moved back here last year, I was stunned by the exposed unhoused population that was now in Oakland, like under all the um, overpasses. All these areas are full of homeless encampments. I've never seen anything like it before. So I grew up in East Oakland. Oakland, I'll just tell you, felt super black back then. Now there is this different feeling when you're around Oakland. So in a lot of ways, it still feels like a black city, but not in a way where you feel comfortable, not in a way where it still feels like home. And I think that, you know, of course, gentrification started off relatively early uh, in the Bay Area, especially thinking about the rising costs of homes. But at the same time, you know, with these kind of economic processes that happen, there's still this feeling, this affective thing that's very everyday that you just don't feel like you belong in the same place anymore. 
and she's right in a lot of ways. Oakland has been rapidly gentrifying, and as a result, historically black neighborhoods are now mainly occupied by affluent whites and Asians. Here's Brandy breaking down how this happened. In 2007, you know, specifically black folks who were borrowing money, they were three times more likely to get a subprime loan than a, than a prime loan, right? And so what ended up happening was black folks started defaulting on their loans and foreclosures began. For those who don't know, a subprime loan is a loan with a higher interest rate than a prime loan. And that higher interest rate pays the lender for taking on a quote-unquote risky borrower. This, in combination with redlining, in which neighborhoods were segregated and the Federal Housing Administration and banks intentionally giving Black people bad loan rates, which they couldn't afford, all led to the foreclosure of homes. And so many of the homes that were in historically Black neighborhoods were lost. And they ended up being purchased by these real estate investors, and they turned them into rental units instead of being single-family homes. And so, you know, there's some crazy statistics where, like, over 90% of the um, properties that were bought by investors were located in the flatlands. And so you started to see these predatory lenders who had previously kind of targeted these black neighborhoods. They, of course, were going bankrupt, but then also it was negatively impacting um, black folks who were living in these communities. And so you started to see this way that we, we couldn't buy homes. And then on top of that, there was this speculative thing where these lenders, these investors were coming in and driving up the prices of various properties to where we couldn't stay. So because of predatory lenders, foreclosures, and the rising cost of homes, many Black folks have been pushed out of the East Bay and into areas like Fairfield, Antioch, and Pittsburgh. This has led to Oakland's Black population dropping 25% over the decades. It was exacerbated by the cost of living just skyrocketing. So when you see Silicon Valley becoming so saturated with wealth, that, you know, folks working at, you know, middle management or lower levels in Silicon Valley couldn't afford to live there. So they started moving further north and moving towards the East Bay. And so they still have higher income than the folks who were living here, specifically the Black people who were living here. So they were able to drive up the prices in meaningful ways. Brandy says that the city of Oakland sought tech startups to come to the town hoping they would bring jobs and a tax base that would increase the revenue of the city. The city of Oakland has shown that they care more about tech corporations than the people. And Brandy's family, like many other families in Oakland, have been impacted by all of this. I feel like if you're Black from Oakland, you know somebody or someone in your family has had, you know, these kinds of experiences. And so none of my family, none, zero, live in Oakland. Everybody has moved out. The increased cost of living made way for techies to move in, while also displacing Black people who lived in the town for generations. This had devastating effects on Black families and ultimately destroyed communities. So in terms of thinking about homelessness uh, and the unhoused, it's interesting because when I was a kid, you know, I had plenty of family members who didn't have a home. And essentially, we all took turns. They stayed on our couch or... They stayed in the den, but we didn't see it as homelessness. It was just kind of like, 
you just can't take care of yours, you know, like uncle such and such is, is staying here for a few months. Right. So I think there's this different relationship also when it's one thing when all of my family is living in Oakland and that uncle or auntie could or cousin could go and hop from house to house. But when you're in an era where you don't have, you know, six family members living in the city that you can pop to, then it becomes a completely different relationship where you might actually have to live on the street. And that's what happened to many Black folks in Oakland. They ended up houseless due to being priced out of their homes and their families not being able to stay in the area. So now the town's Black population is at 23%. And Black folks make up 70% of the houseless population in Oakland. Okay, my name is Paul Magruder. And uh, I'm 63 years old. And uh, I suppose I grew up in uh, San Francisco, California. That's Paul. He's one of the many houseless people we've met through our organization, People's Programs. As part of our work, we have a decolonization program called People's Breakfast Oakland. Every Sunday, we provide houseless people in West Oakland hot meals, clothes, tents, hygiene packs, medical supplies, and other essential material needs. And Paul's been through a lot throughout his life. About 23 years old, some of the guys I grew up with, we had a high-speed chase and a shootout with the police. Yes, sir. And I wound up with 23 years in state prison. That was in 1979 all the way until 1991. After his release from prison, Paul spent a few years finding his footing. And he eventually had two sons and started working. So here I am with two boys. They motivated me to do the right thing. So the first thing I did was I went to truck school and uh, got my license to drive trucks. I worked every day, worked hard, took care of those boys, motivated me to buy a home, you know what I'm saying, right here in Oakland. And uh, I did what was best for them. And things were okay for a little while. Paul worked as a truck driver, raised his kids, and was able to buy a home in North Oakland, way before it got gentrified and it was still somewhat affordable. Bought a home. I bought a home, a two-bedroom home, man. It was just me and my two boys. That's all it was, was black folks over there. And uh, I had respect for everybody that lived there, and it's just as well as the respect they gave me. But unfortunately, Paul ended up in prison again. And during that time, lost his housing. This isn't an isolated incident, but something that happens to a lot of people when they are incarcerated. When Paul got out in 2016, it became hella hard to find work due to his criminal record and California's box law, which at the time allowed employers to inquire into an applicant's criminal history. After a lengthy search, he was finally able to get a job driving trucks again. But then, that business went under, so he was left with zero employment or income. Not too long after, Paul's car was destroyed in an accident. After that, his only option was to live on the streets. Basically, how I became homeless is uh, I got evicted out of the unit on West and uh, MacArthur. And then I had to figure out, well, where am I going to stay? Where am I going to sleep at? Because I slept in my car for eight months. Here I am today, thank God. Paul has been houseless ever since. 
And he says there's so many challenges living on the street, especially in a pandemic. Food, shelter, uh, hygienic items, you know, somewhere to shower, health care. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, you, you may be sick and don't even know. And now with this pandemic we have going on now, man, I'm shelter in place right now. I'm going to have to do it to live. I don't want to just survive. I need to live. And then I have health issues my, myself. So that's basically what I'm going through right now. If you're a houseless person, it's almost nearly impossible to remain six feet apart when you are literally forced to live in encampments with tents that are stacked next to each other. Paul also has mentioned that even within the pandemic, not much has changed around how the city of Oakland treats houseless people. The only thing I've seen change with the city, the county, they're making it more accessible for you to be able to find housing, okay? But as far as uh, following through with it, that hasn't changed much. It is what it is. You know what I'm saying? It is what it is, man. That's why I never put up a tent. You never know when they are coming to town down. Before we go any further, let's dive into a segment we call Let Me Put You On Some. Put me on some. Put me on some. There has been a ton of misinformation spread and liberalizing of what's going on as it pertains to houselessness in Oakland. One minute you have the mayor saying the city is working to put an end to houselessness with all its different programs. Then in the same breath, you have legislation like EMP passing, making it illegal to be houseless damn near everywhere in the town. And let's not mention the weaponizing the language. Take what's going on with the tough sheds in the hotels. Through projects like those, you got the city saying they're quote-unquote housing folks. But we need to look at what they're doing in practice, not theory. Is being put into a temporary hotel housing? Does being put into a six-by-six shed where one can fit nothing more than a cot consider suitable housing? I guess it depends on who you ask. And as of now, the only people being asked these questions and making these decisions are the rich and powerful. And yeah... I'm sure there are more folks like Paul who definitely value being able to sleep in the bed and use a hotel shower as opposed to living on the streets. But we know that that's not a permanent solution. It's a band-aid on a bullet wound. At some point, they're going to be forced back on the streets. We need permanent solutions that will lead to quality housing for all people. Not hotel rooms for a few months, then back on the streets. Not tough sheds that have no room for more than a cot and a duffel bag. Shoot. There's even enough vacant housing in Alameda County right now to house every single houseless person. We have to demand more for the people than these performative reforms and bare minimum resources. A quick refresher. To accompany the Tales of the Town podcast, we've partnered with musicians from across the Bay Area to put together 11 original songs for the Tales of the Town album. All proceeds go towards supporting the Oakland-based organization, People's Programs. Here's a snippet of 23 and the 4th, featuring Rex Live Raj and Monty Draper, available everywhere now. Fade away from that fuck shit. 
three. I'm straight to the bucket, I ain't two, three. Kneel and kiss the ring, two, three. Niggas sad like that mean, two, three. Fade away from that fuck shit, two, three. I'm straight to the bucket, I ain't two, three. Kneel and kiss the ring, two, three. Now let's get back to the story. At the time of this interview, Paul was staying in a hotel that the city of Oakland made available to a small percentage of houseless folks during the pandemic. He was still on a quest to find stable housing and employment. He maintains a valid Class C license and is hoping to one day drive trucks again and ultimately start his own truck driving company. Last year, the city of Oakland passed a budget that will allocate $41 million to preventing houselessness. And although this sounds good in theory, as we mentioned before, what's really happening is an investment in legislation to terrorize houseless folks. Measures like Measure Z gave more money to the police, who continue to destroy the belongings of houseless folks as they evict them off the streets. On some occasions, they'll even bulldoze houseless people while they're still in their tents. Officer, can I ask you a question? Remember the video we took in 2018 of pigs evicting houseless people from an encampment in West Oakland? This still happens all the time. Brandy, who we heard from earlier, said it best. I'm seeing that the policies that are being proposed and in some ways passed to address homelessness, they're like band-aids. They're not actually getting at the core of the problem. They're not getting at the fact that there's this historic form of racism that has contributed to ruining Black communities in Oakland. And so instead, they're making it seem as though the homeless, the unhoused, have to kind of be responsible for themselves and figure it out themselves. They'll be given, you know, a roll of toilet paper and a toothbrush, but they're not necessarily given the opportunity or, again, a particular infrastructure to, to essentially survive and thrive. The city's response to houselessness has been nothing short of inhumane. While Mayor Libby Schaaf has increased spending to OPD, she has also called in the California Highway Patrol to patrol Oakland streets, which, if history shows us correctly, will lead to the harassment and terrorization of Black people. Libby has clearly invested in expanding the police force in Oakland to send a clear message to the poorest of the poor. And that message is, this town ain't yours. While I do not believe Libby and the city council are competent in order to address the problems of capitalism, colonialism, and anti-Black racism, I believe the people can liberate Oakland to where it can and will be a town where Black people are free. On the next episode of Tales of the Town, the gentrifying of Oakland. And then, you know, they started buying up the places, the old Victorians, and fixing them up. That's when it dawned on me what was happening. The gentrification was really happening. Within a few years, it's everywhere. Tales of the Town is hosted and executive produced by me, Abbas Mutakim, and Delancey Parham. Our senior producer is Maya Cueva. Fact-checking is done by Daniel Suleiman and Bashira Mack. 
Mixing and sound design is done by Pat Masidi Miller and Warren Newsom. The theme song was produced by Shyan G and Carrie Lynn. The music from the Tales of the Town album that we featured on this episode is from Rex Life Raj and Monty Draper. Special thanks to Brandy Summers and OG Paul. Make sure to check out Brandy's book called Black in Place, The Spatial Aesthetics of Race in a Post-Chocolate City. If you want to learn more about how to support our organizing efforts with people's programs and feeding the houses community of West Oakland, you can visit our website at peoplesprograms.com. If you like what you heard in this episode, check the description to find the links to the music. If you enjoy Tales of the Town, leave us a five-star review and make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. For taking on a quote-unquote risky borrower. <laughs> That's not right. Please don't make me do that again, Maya. Please, bro. Please. All right.